if you're visiting us here, we've been going through a series, sermon series called um, Stories of Redemption. And it's good news to go through this because when I look back at my life, there is no way I could stand before you, stand before the presence of God apart from his grace and mercy. That we all need these stories to remind us there is hope for the hopeless, that there is redemption for the sinner, and that Jesus Christ transforms lives. So we're looking at that, and last week we talked about the woman of the city, and today we're going to talk about these two thieves. And there's an image of the story, and I just want to keep that up there. And so today we wanted to go focus on one of those thieves um, during this crucifixion. And I'm just going to go right into it. And if there's any part in the Bible that should tell us that your salvation and your acceptance by God is purely by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's this text. I mean, when you think about this man hanging on the cross during his execution, he finds eternal life and salvation. This is the epitome of what could he have done religiously to earn salvation? Could he, did, did he get baptized by immersion? Did he grow up in a good family? Did he start going to church? Did he read the whole Bible? Did he have kindness in his heart? And, you know, we say, oh, you know, he wasn't perfect, but there was goodness in his heart. There is nothing he could have done on his final hours of his life to save him, literally nailed to the cross, except for the grace and the mercy of God. And so this text shows us explicitly this is what Christians believe. We don't believe there's anything good we could contribute for salvation. We are so wretched, but God is so good. And Jesus is so incredibly merciful that through him, we can have life eternal. And so, going on, following up on that, if there's any story in the Bible that shows that redemption in Jesus Christ is possible for anyone and everyone, it's this story. But it also shows us it's not automatic to everyone. What that means is there were two criminals. They both didn't go to heaven. They both didn't find salvation automatically. Only one did. He found a new life, and the other one died in his sin. And so, in other words, we don't believe in this universal salvation. I would love to. I would love to believe that when Jesus died, everybody in the whole land got saved, no matter what they did. And a lot of churches believe that. And I'm not knocking them. And I love that thought. Boy, man, I don't have to do anything. I could just keep on living my life and Jesus died for me. But that's not possible when you look at stories like this. There were specifically two def destinations. One received mercy. The other one remained in sin uh, under the wrath of God. And so if there's any story like this, this is a story that highlights this. There's a difference between these two criminals. And um, you can follow along in your Bible, which I encourage you, uh, if you can, in Luke chapter 23, page 884. Verse 39, there's the two criminals, and this is their statement. One criminal who hanged, railed at him. I think that's a fancy word for just scoffed at him and accused Jesus. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And I like my own just understanding of it is, if you are Jesus, Get us the heck out of here. We are in pain. 
And the other person said, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. I, I said this in other sermons, but you know when we say something like, I deserve a good life, I deserve this. Some people, I hear that often like, I deserve a good life. And I, I think it's one of the scariest things you could say to God. Because when you tell God, I, give me what I deserve, I think what God would say is, I love you too much to give you what you deserve. And so what you hear in these two criminals is, one is like a sort of entitlement is, get us out of here. Save us. The other one, do you not fear God? He is innocent. We're here because of our sins, and he's not. This man has done nothing wrong. And a way of describing what's going on here is one criminal wanted to be forgiven, and the other criminal merely wanted to be excused. And if you said, Jason, that's a really good thought. Thank you, but that's not my thought. C.S. Lewis wrote that. And let me share with you what C.S. Lewis says about this idea. He quotes in his, in his uh, writing, Becoming Truly Human in the Presence of God. He distinguishes, are you asking for forgiveness or are you asking to be excused? And this is what he says. Forgiveness and excusing are almost opposites. Forgiveness says, you have done an evil thing. Nevertheless, I will not hold it against you. Excusing says, I see that you couldn't help it or didn't mean it. You weren't really to blame. And C.S. Lewis continues, Therefore, to excuse someone is to let that person off the hook because he didn't really belong on the hook in the first place. It is a matter of fairness. We refuse to blame someone for something that wasn't his fault to begin with. Under this confusion, we call asking God's forgiveness very often really consists in asking God to accept our excuses. We want God to remember the extenuating circumstances that led us to do what we did. We go away imagining that we have repented and have been forgiven when all that has really happened is that we have satisfied ourselves with our own excuses. Let me just put this simply. What C.S. Lewis is saying here is, when we say, you know, yes, I'm not perfect, but it wasn't my fault, you know, God, just, just, just give me just second chance. Just let me get off the hook. That's asking for an excuse. That's not owning, I am a sinner. I have sinned against you. That's simply saying, God, it wasn't my fault. And sometimes, like, like the cartoon we showed before, this is probably your fault. You put me in that situation, God. There's no owning. And when we pray that, we feel like, okay, I feel better about myself. I'm forgiven. And C.S. Lewis is saying, that's not repentance or asking for forgiveness. You've just justified yourself. Forgiveness is, I have done something wrong, and the only way I could get by God is, I need your forgiveness. Two different postures. Two different attitudes. And so, one criminal owned his sins and said, we deserve this. The other criminal said, I don't deserve this. Just get me off. 
And then brings us to the question, do I, and makes me ask, do I want God to merely excuse me or do I need God to completely forgive me? Two different things. And we see that dynamic on this cross. Friends, I think there are a lot of times we, we, we justify it. It's, it's, it was a children's message, but hey, why did you steal that Nintendo? Well, it was your fault because you didn't borrow, you let me borrow it. And I think, what does that look like in adult life? Well, I'm not that bad. It was because my boss is such a jerk or my neighbor was such a pain in the butt and forced me to do it. Okay, that's great. That explains it. But what do we do that with that now before God? And what the scripture is pointing us at is there is something about where grace can come when we recognize the need for grace in our brokenness of sin. And so, this is moves on to this last part. If there's anything in the Bible that shows the fullness of Jesus' heart, if you ever wanted to know who is the true Jesus, it's this passage right here. Um, can you say amen if this is true? Suffering and pain have a way of bringing out your true person underneath. Right? So, for example, you know, um, this never happened in our family, uh, but just hypothetically, I have really good relationship with in-laws. But when, let's say in-laws are in town, from out of town, and in the beginning, it's like, oh, it's so good to see you. How was the flight? Welcome. We love you. Blah, 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 blah. Day four, you're tired. You're cleaning the house. You're, you can't walk around in your boxers or just in your T-shirt. And they come in, and then sometimes you're, like, agitated. What happens at day four? You get it yourself. I mean, sorry, let me, um, forgive me. <laughs> you know? And then sometimes the politeness fades in the midst of suffering and who you are, your impatience, or what you really might be comes out. That's a human phenomenon. We're very civil, but once suffering and pain hits, your true self, your uninhibited self comes out. That's why when people get married, they're like, I didn't know he was like that. I didn't know she uh, did that. Well, that's because you were in a honeymoon stage and everything looked beautiful. Now, welcome to pain and suffering and the real self comes out. <laughs> Marriage is not pain and suffering. That's not what I mean. <laughs> but in that relationship, you'll have pain and suffering. And so Paul Tripp, he's a Christian author, and he, he, wrote, he writes a book on suffering, and he wrote an article that said, uh, there are, suffering discloses your true self, and I'll share three ways that Suffering discloses your true self. Number one, suffering exposes your true idols. When you're in the midst of pain and suffering, you start recognizing your idols. Because, for example, if I have stage four terminal cancer and my idol has been money and wealth, I start realizing all the money in the world can't save me. I've been following a false god. Sometimes... Suffering and pain exposes the pride, that pride has been your idol, not God. I am the king, I am the queen, I rule the world. And suffering and pain, Paul Tripp says, it discloses your true idols, what you really endear and hold. Second, he says, suffering reveals the truth that you have discomfort trusting in God. In other words, it's good to say, I trust God, I trust God. 
But suffering tests that and says, do you really trust God? And pain will show that. Pain and suffering, Paul says, will show, I'm not sure if I trust this God as much as I thought I said I did. And third, he says, suffering reveals your sense of entitlement of your life. In other words, when you get surprised that there's pain in your life, you're like, how could it happen to me? As opposed to, this is hurts, but we'll get through it. And instead, we're like, why is this happening to me? Why, why, why not everyone else? Why is it happening to me? And this entitlement. And Paul Tripp says, suffering discloses our true self. And on this cross, can you imagine if Jesus is on the cross and he says this, and I share this with our Bible study. Imagine this with me. Hypothetically, Jesus says, take me off. This is unjust. You're killing an innocent man. I, I recant. Please let me go. How would that change everything that we know about God? I mean, you'll be like, am I in the right church? <laughs> am I following the right God? I know he rose again, but now there's this little bit of doubt. But we know even in his point of suffering, Jesus maintained and was true to his true self. As he's hanging on the cross, instead of shouting like, get us down, we don't deserve this, or this is what he says, verse 34, Father, by the way, as nails are just pierced through his ligaments and joint and nerves, and through his feet, and as his body's hanging on the cross for six hours, his statement is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Verse 43, he says to the criminal, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Using Paul Tripp's article that suffering brings out our true self, what does this reveal about Jesus, his true self? Jesus' only comfort is God. It reveals that Jesus embraced agony of sin, of pain, because he was dealing with sin. Jesus wasn't entitled to comfort because he was there for the purpose of dying for the sin of the world. And so this didn't go unnoticed. Pain and suffering reveals our true self. It revealed the two criminals, and it reveals Jesus. That he is not a fake, he is not a, a, a religious leader, he is the son of God. And something happened, because the Gospel of Matthew has a different account of the two thieves. This is what Matthew says in verse 27, chapter 27, verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified, you get that? And the robbers, the two robbers who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. They scoffed at him. And so for a moment, we're like, wait, is there a contradiction in the Bible? Because Luke's version says one of the criminals defended him. Now, Matthew's version says both of them were mocking him. Is this a contradiction in the Bible? And so it's a fair question. Is there a contradiction? What's going on? I believe both happened and they were both right. But the timing of it was different. When we're reading this text, we're reading it in 30 seconds. But literally, how long did the crucifixion take place? He was crucified at 9 a.m., the third hour. 9 a.m. And then when it was noon, everything was dark. 
And then Luke 23 tells us, by the ninth hour at 3 p.m., Jesus calling out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and Jesus breathed his last. It took six hours. How many of you would sit in a movie theater for six hours? Oh, I heard a lot of grumbling. I heard, that was, that was good. Some of you might have done it for Star Wars trilogy, maybe, you know, Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back. I, I would. Maybe Lord of the Rings. But if I said, hey, let's go to the movies for six hours today, how many of you would raise your hand? Like, oh, you, you go ahead. Well, I'll join you later. Six hours, three of them are nailed to the cross. And I believe in the beginning, both robbers were saying, get us down, you're, you're a loser, you're dying with us, and, and they both mocked him. But along the way, both of them heard Jesus. They saw his posture. They recognized his love. How does he say, Father, forgive them while they're both nailed to the cross? And then something amazing happened in this pain and anguish. They saw Jesus. Is he truly God? And one of them started changing. And something amazing happens. In that moment, when one criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you go into paradise, what's amazing is, in that moment, in literally the whole world, there is no one that has more faith in Jesus Christ than that thief who repented. Think about it. None of the disciples were standing there watching Jesus crucified, saying, Jesus is suffering now. About three days, he'll be back. This is okay. None of them. They were all going, he's dead. He's dying. How could this happen? His own mother and women were, were crying, saying, this moment of pain, it's over. I can't believe it's over. None of them were going, you know what? This was what Jesus said. He's going to be back. This is good news. None of them. They all believed he was dead, except for this thief on the cross that said, you are God. Remember me. Amazing faith. And so what happened? Um, this is fiction. There's a deacon, Frederick Bartels, and he wrote a fictitious account of this. And I thought it was fascinating. So this is not the Bible. And you could say Pastor Jason doesn't preach the Bible at this part. But let me just read it for you to give an account of what could have happened. And he writes this. The thief says, I look back at Jesus. He was staring at me in a way, in a knowing way. I don't know how for long I couldn't tell you, but what I can tell you is everything changed. His gaze was a gaze of divine penetration and power. The hate that before burned in me like fire was transformed. In an instant, I saw myself, my life, and my sins. I saw how alone I was, how wrong I had been. I saw my wretchedness. I saw how I had blamed others for my troubles, how I had used and abused people, how I had killed people. I saw how desperately I needed God's forgiveness. And in that same instant, I saw also that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Son of God. Then a great peace came over me. There are no words to describe it. And then those well-known words spilled from my lips. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
He replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And tears streamed from my eyes in unison with those of his mother. There's something about encountering Christ as a sinner and seeing nothing but a gaze of love to us, not of condemnation, not of disdain, but Christ's love of Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and being transformed in that. And that grace is received when we recognize when he says, I saw the wretchedness of my sin, and I couldn't blame others. And that is how the penetrating truth of the gospel transforms us. It is not in excusing ourselves. It is not in justifying ourselves, but it is falling at the feet of Christ and saying, it is not him or her, but it's me, God, my wretchedness that you need to forgive, and I beg you. And the love of Christ was immense. The faith of the criminal in Jesus Christ was real, and grace won. The life was redeemed. And this man's life was redeemed not by anything he had done, but by the faith and trust he had in Christ to receive his grace. To put it cruelly, I was thinking this, this thief literally was at the right place at the right time in the last hours of his life. But yet, as good Presbyterians would say, that was not an accident. This was a perfect providential plan of God to forgive and redeem you and me and this sinner. This was an impeccable, infallible plan of God that is unfolding in the world today. And so the good news that we proclaim is not that we are good people who occasionally make mistakes, but we have a great God who corrals and brings wretched, broken people with love and says, I forgive you. What an amazing God we have. And as we meditate in this Easter season, may you run to God and may you confess your sins to God and may you recognize his mercy overcomes all of your flaws and my flaws. Let's pray together. I'd like to just take a moment in silence for a moment and just, just, just be before the presence of God. That we don't have to take on these nails that Jesus took. That we don't have to pay the price of sin knowing Jesus paid it all. And as we gather here as Christians or maybe those seeking, where are you? Where are you before God? Do you desperately seek him as the forgiver of your soul? Or are you busy trying to explain and rationalize your life to him? And sometimes the best thing we could do is I surrender all. All to thee, my precious Savior. I surrender all.